0: Psychology in Seattle Hey, deserved listeners. Today, we're going to answer your emails. Let's get into it. Um, Umberto, what do you say? Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor.
1: My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I am looking for Bigfoot prints.
0: This uh, This first animal, this first email is from an anonymous patron, and they write... I just listened to your most recent episode where listener Colin describes an experience he had dating. Uh, So this is the episode we did on ghosting. Yep. Uh, What really resonated with me was the sonnet that he sent the guy. Mm. So just chiming in here, Colin uh, really fell head over heels for someone that he started dating uh, and it seemed like it was mutual. And uh, uh, Colin and this fella... Uh, were uh, spending a lot of time together and uh, talking about how they're glad they finally met the right person for them. And then uh, Colin wrote this sonnet for him, and then that seemed to kind of either coincide or be a factor in uh, this this other fella uh, <coughs> saying to Colin that he wasn't really interested in him. and and <coughs> And Colin was really hurt by that. Right. And so anyway... Um, what really resonated with me was the sonnet that Collins sent the guy. You suggested that maybe he sent the sonnet as a way of making sure he wasn't going to lose the guy and that he was reacting to past trauma. This is 100% me. I've only had a couple of dating experiences in my life, and both of them have turned out similarly to Colin's. Oh, wow. If I'm dating a girl and it becomes clear that she's interested in me, a mild refrigerator hum of anxiety immediately starts. Hmm. The anxiety gets worse if I text her and it takes a while for her to respond, which is then followed by an undeniable relief when she finally does respond. The cycle continues for the remainder of the relationship, which doesn't which usually doesn't last long. I can only imagine that I'm coming off hostile, awkward, intense, or pressuring to these women. I can't I can't pinpoint specific behaviors, but I have to assume I'm coming off like that at some point. I'm very aware of this anxiety while it's happening, and I'm aware of how rational it is, but my body and my feelings take over in these moments, no matter how hard I try to act normal. I'm in therapy addressing past traumas. My therapist has suggested that in the future, I just be honest about these feelings to whomever I'm dating. But should I? It seems like a lot to put on somebody while in the initial phases of dating. Should I even be dating at this point? Is this something that can even be fixed? Just wanted your opinion. Umberto. (laughs) Ha!
1: Wow. Yeah. First of all, I can relate uh, on some fronts, like for example, and I think a lot of people must be able to relate. You start a new relationship uh, and there is that push-pull, like how much do I communicate? How soon do I communicate? What do I say? For some people, these things I think come more automatic, uh, maybe because they've been more practiced or just their personality type, whatever. I know for me, I second guess a lot of things uh all the time you know I'm always in my head thinking through things, and when I'm thinking through things in my head, it usually goes something like uh yeah okay well should i should I comment about this thing that they mentioned because if I comment about that, that might seem like I'm too interested, but if I don't comment it seems like it and all those kinds of thoughts I think they're natural uh however, there is a part where if if it becomes this level of anxiety where you're just kind of like sabotaging yourself, and uh, you know, there's that movie, uh, Swingers, right, where uh, uh, John Favreau is uh, sitting there, and he leaves a message for the girl that he's broken up with, but then the message gets cut off, or it's a girl he just met, or something like that. The message gets cut off, and he's like, oh! So he calls back, he's like, I'm sorry, the the message got cut off, so I meant to... And then it just becomes like a series of Fifteen messages obviously uh, ruining the chances for the relationship, and that is an extreme um, what i'm what i'm wondering is what is the I, I guess what is the the experience of that that situation of waiting for a response, fearing that the response may never come, and then that endorphin release when it comes that feels like almost like addictive uh behavior right like i I, i've experienced it i think it's not uncommon there's even a whole thing about uh you can't leave me on what is it uh like don't leave someone on on red that's what it that's what people say you left me on red meaning that uh the last message says that it was red but you never replied and that's a big thing i think people in general experience this anxiety so how would one navigate that anxiety and maybe you know cope with it What, what do you think
0: Yeah, well, people experience that anxiety to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone experiences, I guess, uh, that anxiety sometimes, depending on the circumstance. But given some people's relational traumas, like what this person is talking about, then they're much more likely to uh, have an exaggerated feeling in that way. When we are abandoned growing up, when we're uh, not nurtured enough growing up, when we're criticized too much growing up or something, we have this um we haven't had our tank filled up adequately with love and attention and we feel that deficit and when we finally meet someone who might be able to fill it a lot of our attention gets placed on that and when they fail to fill it as fast as we hope that they do then it just reminds us of all that pain that we've never been able to get it and we experience a lot of anxiety so um so, I, you know, I, I think that should, be pull, uh, that should be pointed out. But how does one deal with it? You know, Colin's doing all the things that he should be doing. One is to remind himself that it's irrational to uh, get that way because um, your feelings are going to come. You have those relational traumas. It's going to trigger those, those feelings. Uh, but you have to push back cognitively at the very least. You're not going to succeed in getting rid of the feeling. But at the very least, you're not going to go along with it consciously. It's sort of like thinking, um, you know, what's what's an analogy? I was thinking of a carjacking, but that's not a very good analogy. Um, it's sort of be like uh, you're at a PTA meeting, and a very vocal, weird group is screaming hmm. at the PTA meeting. And they're like, we want you to ban Huck Finn or something. <laughs> and you're on the other side of the room, and you're just like, uh I don't agree with that in fact I don't think most of us agree with that. Well, if you just if you just remain quiet, well, that vocal minority of weirdos is going to is going to take, take over. So, you got to speak up. Yeah. Now, you're not going to change their mind. Right. You're not going to change those, you know, 13 people's mind that Huck Finn needs to go away. Um, But you can balance the equation a little bit. So at the very least, the leadership understands that not everyone agrees with them. So you have to push back and you have to say, uh, okay, I I feel this feeling of panic right now. But that's related to my past traumas and is not commensurate with what's happening right now. Uh, Plus, if things don't work out with this person, it's not the end of the world, even though it kind of feels like it's going to be. But I have to at least tell myself it's not the end of the world. That's not going to take away your feelings, but at least they're not running the show. The other thing that you're doing, Colin, is you're in therapy and you're healing from those past traumas. The other thing that your therapist is suggesting you do, which I actually second, is that to be honest about it. Now, you might be um, – maybe you're unclear as to how to be honest about it. You know, it's like – and your question is valid. You're like, well, isn't that a lot to lay on someone in the the first, uh, you know, couple dates? Well, you don't lay it all on them you tell them, you know, like you're, um, it's date three or something. And you say something like this, you say something like, look, I I just want to tell you something. And, um, you know, you don't have to respond. Don't, don't worry about having to respond, but you know, we've had three dates and you know, I like you. Uh, uh, my conscious mind is telling me (laughs) that, uh, you know, who knows if things will work out between the two of us. I'd like to see us go to a few more dates and and see where this goes. And, um, and I, I, you know, I really like you. I I think this, you know, who knows, maybe this will work out, maybe it won't. But that's where I'm coming from. The other thing I want to tell you is that, you know, my mom abandoned me a lot when I was a kid, which has led me to be um, kind of uh, anxious about people abandoning me. I have that kind of issue. And, And although I'm in therapy and I I sort of have it under control for the most part, sometimes what it does to me is that, uh, like, if I text you and you don't text me back right away, which is totally fine with me, by the way, sometimes it triggers this abandonment feeling in me and I I sort of wrestle with myself where I'm, I'm getting worried, but then my, you know, higher mind is going like, well, no, everything's fine. And so sometimes... I, I'm gonna pre apologize to you because I might actually come across like I'm upset at you or something for not texting me back right away, because you know, text is sometimes hard to communicate effectively. And I just wanna apologize in advance for that because um it's an issue of mine that I've I've done in the past and I don't want to do it again with anyone, let alone you. And uh and if I ever do that, never feel bad about yourself because mm-hmm. that's just my issue and by all means, if you want to tell me to fuck off, please do so. I never want to put you in a position where you feel like you're pressured or anything like that because that's not the way anyone should live.
1: So, would you like more water? Have you noticed that your date is no longer sitting here? <laughs> <laughs> so, I do wonder actually the balance between being that honest, how soon, and whether or not the attitude should be. Well, if they can't handle this then it's okay cuz it just means that we're just not going to work anyways. Yeah.
0: Um <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, if someone likes you, yeah, then uh and they're halfway fucking mature, yeah. I mean, that's one thing like when you start dating when you're like 35 or something, you realize like oh, I have to acknowledge that I have issues and you have issues. It's sort yeah. of a a trope, you know, it's like, oh, we're dating at 40 years old, everyone's got baggage. Well, uh people have more baggage when they're 20. They just are so narcissistic and immature yeah. that they can't acknowledge that they have the baggage. Right. So if someone's going to run away from you from that, then fuck them. If they can't handle a conversation like that, the, the way I put it forward was this is not your fault. Yeah. This is an issue of mine I'm working on. I'm mature enough to work on it and um And, you know, I'd love to talk about things in a real honest way. Right. Uh, If someone runs away from you with that, then fuck that. And in my experience, nobody runs away from that because it's a breath of fresh air from the games that people play that they don't want to involve in. Um, So that's what I have to say about that. Yeah.
1: I also think the – I've said this before. So one one aspect is – when I was a kid, uh, I was, I think, in eighth grade, maybe ninth grade. Yeah, ninth grade. There was this girl that I really liked, and she lived uh, not close to me, but she lived close to my cousin. And I was talking to her, and uh, I was so into her. I, I couldn't tell if she was into me or not. And I'm like, what, what are you, what's going on uh, this weekend? Are you going to be around? And she's like, no, I'm actually going to be at this jamboree. Like, what's a jamboree? Oh, like, I'm a Girl Scout, and there's going to be this huge jamboree thing. And and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that whole weekend, I was obsessed. I was with my buddy, and I kept thinking, oh, my gosh. I wonder if I should try to go to that jamboree and, like, show up. And, And, like, first of all, I had no idea what this jamboree was. I had no way to get there at all. I couldn't even imagine what would have happened if I randomly show up at some jamboree and they're like, Excuse me, what do you need? Oh, I need to get in here. Why? There's this girl I like and I just wanna go say something. What are you gonna say? Like what I can't even imagine. But in my head, it was all being like thought through. I'm like, Maybe I should just go. Tell her how I feel. Blah blah blah. Right? These grandiose gestures from movies. Um well when, you know, she finally returned from the Jamboree. Oh, and I I left like Three messages at her house, like for when she returned from January. Um, I that thing went nowhere. You know, it's like it crashed and burned immediately. And all that obsession, all that thinking and rethinking and overthinking, was it felt inevitable. It's like something that I couldn't really control. So what what comes to mind is if I had been busy with my own thing, <laughs> it would it would have been a little harder for me to just obsess about it. Right, But instead, that weekend, I was kind of like doing nothing, just hanging out with my friend. We had no plans or anything. Um, so, so one thing that I always think is uh, busy yourself. Like Busy yourself not just with like uh, little, literally just busy work, but have plans. Have things you want to do. Uh, take classes. Go on tours. Go take trips. Take adventures. Well, have a hobby. Have a hobby. Because it, what ends up happening is two things. One is you end up being actually less available for just ruminating. Because you're actually busy doing stuff number one it's not perfect, but it helps Number two, you meet people number three, when you meet people, you have things to talk about because you actually are doing things, and there's things that you're into and things yeah. and you also can st- <clears throat> sorry you also can start discriminating what you actually want to spend your time doing and not doing unless, instead of
0: unless your hobby is sharpening knives and uh, <laughs> cutting up uh, stuffed animals <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, okay. That could be a neat thing. You could make YouTube videos about it and stuff. But anyways, my general point is that and this is going to sound trite. And I don't mean disrespect to this listener or anyone else. It's just have a life. And I don't mean get a life. I just mean really have, have a life of things you want to be doing and make that the primary thing and make having a relationship The secondary thing.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. So the final thing that uh, you ask here is, should you even be dating at this point? Uh, uh, The question is up to you. Um, It's fine to be dating at this point. Uh, Worst case scenario, you scare people away. (laughs) Um, uh, There are worse things in life. The likelihood that the next five people you date are going to work out is pretty slim. So you might as well just admit that to yourself and be fine with it. Um, Is this something that can even be fixed? Absolutely. With uh, corrective experiences with your therapist and other people, you will uh, begin to feel more secure, securely attached, and less anxious when you are facing insecurity with other people. So this next email is from patron Phil. Phil uh, sent this article in about why we play video games. He's very interested in mm. the reasons why people play video games. And at first, I was like, huh, well, let's look at this article. And then I looked into it, and I was like, whoa, there's this one study where they looked at so many different reasons why people play video games, and they tried to find the... They tried to rank them from the most uh, the most frequently given reason to the mm. least, least frequently given reason. So... I'm just gonna. I'm gonna. I want to read all of them actually because I think that is sort of interesting. And if any of these sort of (laughs) jump out, there's there's a there's a lot. So, but if any of these particularly jump out at you, okay, like like, reasons why I do it, kind of thing, right? Okay. So this first uh, category is called accomplishment. So people play video games for accomplishment reasons, and again, not just first-person shooters, but also you know. Uh, Angry Birds and mm-hmm. phone games and you know all the video games. Minesweeper, right? Um, accomplishment, um, artistic accomplishment, meaning you, it conveys a meth uh, a message expressing the author's vision mm. um, to induce an interpretation. Oh, so you're you're like uh, interpreting the artistic vision of the artist. Um, okay. Challenge a physical challenge, so a test of physical skills. Yeah, I can uh,
1: relate to that one. How so? Especially with the first-person shooters. The oh,
0: and no, but this is a physical like, actually, your physical. This isn't coordination of your hands. This is physical, like like a Wii, or or never mind. Yeah, uh, challenge intellectual. T- t- testing your mental skills.
1: Well, there better be a category for physical and eye coordination. Believe yeah. me, it's <laughs> okay. all in there. Yeah, mental. Yes, I relate to mental.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, spending real money. Spending. No, 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 okay, yeah, that, really. yeah. Uh, enrichment, teaching you things, facilitate learning. Not much. Earnings, uh, nope. real money gain. Nope. <laughs> Pro- progression, progression markers like gain yeah. levels, characters. Yeah, yeah, totally. Recognition, ways to be known by the public. No. Uh, reincarnation possible to live someone else's life and work. Eh. Soul searching, eh. health good for your health. Eh. Find in uh, in real life love partner. Eh. Find sex partner. Eh. Uh, IRL consequences. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next. Next is I don't know why that's all accomplishment. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Um, oh, those
1: were all accomplishment. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just gonna
0: read because I think the the, the umbrella okay. category. Um, Exploits, meaning epic feats achieve exploits and great things. Mm-hmm. Uh, completion. Yeah, I like that, completion. yeah, I like that too. Uh, difference, the originality of the game. Yeah. Uh, exploration to visit places, yes, landscapes. I like that. Goodies, goodies around the game, real products, mm. uh, figurines, cards. Story, nice. ad, ad, you know, advanced yeah. storyline, history to learn history. Um, I do, I do it for that. A
1: little bit with the with the war games. A little bit. Immer- oh, Age of Empires.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> immersion, distinctive atmosphere, uh, fan service, uh, casting with celebrities, mm. incarnation, uh, possi- possible possibility to embody someone or something else. To focus on the pragmatic part of a role, mm. like uh, like I don't know, uh, veracity presents transcripts of real historical events, mm. adrenaline, fast rhythm, explosives. Uh, relaxation, uh, for sure. That's for me. Uh, sexual arousal. <laughs> you don't play any sexually arousing
1: games. No, except Leisure Suit Larry. <laughs> Did you actually play that game? Yeah, when I was a kid, I played one, two, three, I think four. <laughs>
0: it's funny because my friend who had a PC or Apple or something, yeah, he his I th- he he was begging, and we were probably like in the fifth grade. He was begging his parents to let him buy a laser suit, sh- Larry, but we were like, we're never going to get that game. That's, that's ridiculous. I
1: never owned it. I always played it at other people's houses. I wasn't, I wouldn't have, well, I, I don't know. I just didn't have a PC that could run it, run it I guess.
0: To experience joy, uh, positive yeah. thoughts. Sure. Freedom, freedom of movement and action. Yeah. Nostalgia, memories of things that happened in the past. Mm. Eh, I mean, Maybe. Oblivion helps you forget about the hustle and bustle of <laughs> daily life. Uh, absolutely for me. Uh, fear, like being like horror games. I played some of those. So I don't like, like those games. I like it. Uh, laugh aimed at making you laugh. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like there was um, the South Park game, which I yeah,
1: la- I love that. Game.
0: I laughed at, but I I don't know, it didn't hold me. Ravaging like. Uh, uh, Trolling, possibly to bore others, to stand in their way, to provoke them. Uh, Control, bend the environment to your will, convey your skills. Eh. Submission, very controlled environment, rules well laid out. Corridor game, scripts. Hmm. Astonishment, uh, you want to be astonished. Uh, Tranquility, instill zen. uh,
1: Oh, I've played a couple games like that, Flower.
0: Solitude, play solo unsolicited by outside events i'm definitely like that i like i like solitaire games i actually i i,
1: I tend to prefer solitaire as well
0: yeah i almost hate pvp games um, so i'll just rattle through experimentation gameplay uh lots of gameplay sort of innovation fairness ease time spending stability repetition graphics sound touch movement yes
1: graphics sound touch movement
0: uh competition cooperation i love co-op i games. love co ops Family, couples, friends. Um, Okay. So when you look at the research and they, you know, ask people uh, the most, the 10 most frequently said um, reasons as to why, you know, motivations for why people play video games, the number one was immersion. Immersion. So a distinctive atmosphere, polished, coherent, immersive. Mm, Okay. Second is gameplay diversity. Rich gameplay with numerous mechanics uh, preventing routine. Rich gameplay with numerous mechanics. Yeah, I, I certainly play games like that, like I mean, I wonder strategy if, games.
1: I wonder if this is how people answered or these are the gestalts of how people answered. You know what I mean? Because that seems like – like I don't see the average person answering. Like I prefer an immersive imb- environment. Yeah, you know, you know the, what I mean? The,
0: the, the language of this study is really kind of weird. Yeah. I mean I don't know if they coded – anyway – um, but I think they actually said yes to this item. Uh, three is history, to, to relive really? or anticipate history, it says. Oh. Um, four is freedom, freedom of movement and action, le- lenient environment, uh, none or very few restrictions. And by the way, these are both the United States and Europe and mm-hmm. South America people. Um, exploits, gameplay depth, the depth of gameplay, difference – um, oblivion, which I can definitely relate to, uh, you know, help forget about the hustle bustle of life. Um, the least, the 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 mo- the least cited reason for playing video games is spending real money. <laughs> oh, of course, <laughs> which is pretty obvious. Um, anyway, but why do you think you play video games, Umberto? All
1: right. Well, um, when I like, if I think about why I started playing video games, there was nothing like it. Because every game that I could play with cars or with my toys, my action figures, or just with guns pretending to shoot each other or just running around playing tag and all these things uh, was, with, was bound by the laws of physics. You know, uh, My action figures, I had to make them talk myself, all these things, right? But here on the computer screen, it seemed like anything could happen. Physics didn't need to, to matter. Uh, all of a sudden things could talk by themselves. You know, monsters could become real. All these things. So it was like, uh, all, 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 it was like the holodeck. You know, like everything was possible, and so that that became sort of unbeatable. It, nothing else could compare to it. Uh, I remember that feeling when I when I first played video games. I, I think probably the very first video game was uh, as a little sit down of Galaxian. I think maybe also Pac Man or something at at a restaurant and i just remember that feeling of like oh my god like these little creatures i'm making them move and
0: right it's, it's funny it's funny sights. you're bringing that up because you and i were at the cusp of video games yeah where when we were young we didn't have them right and we played the old fashioned way which is to pretend yeah and then these video games come along and suddenly we live in both worlds yeah And I've I've never heard it put into words before, but you are, which is when video games first came out, I suddenly had this, I had things that were in my head Mm -hmm. represented in the real world that I could actually manipulate. Yeah. And although I enjoyed it in my head and I enjoyed drawing it on my piece of paper, it was so much more expedient (laughs) to just pop in the cartridge and play it yeah. On the TV. You're driving a Ferrari through the beach. Yeah.
1: With, like, music and... Well, before you know, that, it's... No, I know, but Space I'm just, invaders and... Sure. But I'm just, like, extrapolating to that idea of... Every, and every milestone of
0: gaming, it just upped the stakes, you know, like... Well, but I think that even with the very first games, it essentially meant that if you wanted to, you didn't have to really pretend anymore. Right. You could actually play... Because before video games, you still had all the same desires to blow stuff up, to shoot things, to be powerful, to uh, gather loot. But you had to do it in your imagination or with play. And suddenly the video games come out and it's like, oh, well, I guess I could sit in my room and imagine Mm -hmm. all this or I could just play the video game.
1: Yeah. And and like, for example, if you wanted to play in real life with your friends... um, you can't run as fast as a car. You can't jump from a building. You but can't, you can pretend. You can pretend. You and can we did all, all the time. We did all right. the time. Uh, you, you can definitely do that. Uh, but in the video game, you can do that. All of it. Right. And more. You can fly through space. You can do whatever. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the reasons why I play video games, if you know, and I, I guess it would take a long time to really describe it, because I've, you know, in, in the 30, 40 years of video games that I've played, i there's been a lot of different reasons, but I tend to have themes. Like, I, I love uh, strategy games, and the reason why, you know, like Civilization or Rim World, or uh, what's the new uh, space, you know, galaxy planet game, I can't remember, Stellaris is called. Um, the reason why I like these games is because it's a puzzle. It's slow, because I hate games that make me stressed out. Like, if I'm playing a first-person shooter, particularly PvP, my adrenaline is going. Right. And I typically play video games just before I go to bed. Oh. And so, if I play something that's scary, it's not a good environment to fall asleep to. Um, Plus, it's just not really my life anymore. I don't like to have that adrenaline. And I I realize I'm in the minority. I mean, (laughs) Fortnite and, you know, those kind of, you know, Apex, whatever. Um, Apex Legends. These kinds of movies or these kind of video games are so stressful to me that I don't care how good I ever get at it. uh, it, It's just not fun. Um, Now, if I'm playing against a computer, it's definitely a step down. But um, what I do like to do is actually watch people play these video games on Twitch and YouTube. Because, um, like, there's this one game that tries to recreate World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember the name of the game, but it's... um, uh, they actually have a, like you can talk to the people who are close to you. And so, and they usually, well, before you do a mission, there's usually like a, like a captain who's like, okay, everyone gather around, here's the mission. We're going to be going against the computer. We're going to be going against these other players. Right. We got it. We got to do this. And you get shot like once you're dead uh-huh. and you don't, and you don't respond. Right. And so, uh, uh, and, like, people are shooting at people from very far away. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like you would in real life. Yeah. And they're suppressing fire. And there's, you know... And so... Um, now I'll watch a game like that, but my God, I could never play it. I'd be too stressed out. Anyway. So I love the slow <laughs> games. I love I love the strategy games. I love the puzzle aspect to it. And I love the the sort of progression you know you're yeah. building text you're 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 it's not a static game you're you're always kind of your army's getting bigger your your territory's getting bigger i also like it, so it feels like accomplishing something you know yeah. it, f- it feels like i'm you know uh, a business owner and i'm getting more uh, <laughs> territory for my pizza hut or yeah. something and there's literally games where you could do that but Um, The other aspect I like it is the unknown, like the fog of war, right? You never know what's beyond the fog of war. What, when am I going to bump up against, uh, you know, I'm playing Rome. When am I going to bump up against Germany and, Mm -hmm. and how, and, I'm trying to race to get my territory up to that point. But I don't want to be too thin on my army because then he can invade me. You
1: don't know what they've got, how far they've advanced. Right. Or
0: even what civilization is over there. Right. And so the discovery and the searching of the fog of war and looking for resources is also something that I really like. Um, Now, I definitely like first-person shooters, but I like to play against the computer um, I kind of like the story, but usually I'm just like, eh, just get me to the action. Right. Especially because a lot of the stories are so bad. Yeah. Um, like, I remember the um, Black Ops uh, <laughs> Call of Duty. because yeah, both
1: you and I really like Modern Warfare. That story was great and it had some moments. Remember how we would talk about, yeah. like, the helicopter moment and everything? Yeah. But then— Because uh, it
0: was down to Earth. It was yeah. like, there's a, there's a group of soldiers, yeah. and they're on a mission— to save a guy yeah. or to get a thing. Yeah. And there's <laughs> a helicopter that's coming yeah. in, you know, but then black ops comes along yeah. and it's like, um, it's like, uh, what's that Japanese game that was really popular. Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. Metal yeah. Gear Solid where the <laughs> the storyline, it's like, they're in your head. Yeah. And you're part of the matrix. Yeah. And it's like, what the fuck is happening right now? You know what I mean? It yep. yep. halos that way to me. Yeah. Like the whole Halo storyline, um, I understood the broad strokes, you know, you had the Well the
1: first one especially it was pretty it was it was more
0: straightforward. But even the first one I didn't really understand. Like I, I Sure, I, I, understood, I see what you're saying. I understood the missions, I understood what I was supposed to do. I but just I, think
1: by the third one, it's way complicated right because
0: to the fans they read all yeah. the books, you know they went yeah. online, and the story was an advancement of their understanding, yeah but to me i'm like i'm I'm lost so so usually when i'm when I'm playing a game, um I'm so lost that i I completely give up on the story, and especially if there's a <laughs> lot of dialogue that I'm right. like I don't even know what's happening right that's a bummer to me
1: so I, I recently watched uh rob zombie's movie thirty one yeah. did you ever see that no. Um and it reminds me a little bit of this because I love House of a Thousand Corpses. It's just a good horror movie. You know, I like it. And, and it's because, well, one of the things that makes it great, it's fairly straightforward. These two dudes arrive at a little roadside attraction, and then their car mysteriously breaks down, and then they have to endure horrific horrors from a crazy family. End of story. This movie, 31, tries to set up all this other, like, it's a, it's a world of these people that are kidnapping people to torture them and then they gamble and they do all these things. And then there's all this symbolism and there's way too many characters and there's and it's just like you lose immediately you lose the thread of what the heck is supposed to be happening and yeah. it's boring. Yeah. Uh so it's a similar thing where you're like these games that have these really complicated storylines and you're like, uh I just want to play.
0: <laughs> Another reason why I play video <clears throat> games is to pass the time. So uh, like really mindless games mm-hmm. like this this one game I've been playing. There's two games I've been playing on my phone for the past, I don't know, five years. Um, I play Settlers of Catan, which is just right. the board game on my phone. And is that against the AI, basically? AI, yeah. yeah. And then uh, and I became really good at that game, nice. by <laughs> the way. I mean, I must have played thousands of games against oh the computer. Oh, my God. Because, <laughs> um, you know, the average person plays one game a year. Yeah, with I their, most. <laughs> Um, and the other so, game, like
1: so, like you have all these strategies and stuff, right?
0: Yeah. And shortcuts of like yeah. I know how to do a turn real fast. Um, and Splendor, which is a game kind of like Settlers of Catan, but it's with coins and you know. And it's so both of these games are games you can actually play in real life, like a right. board game. And they put them on the phone. And, and I, I play those games all the time. I also have been playing Ticket to Ride, which is another board game that I play on my phone. Anyway. I've uh, been
1: playing – to tell you, I've been playing this game called Death Road to Canada. It's a um, pixel art, like 8-bit style game. It's, it's available on Steam. I have it on the Switch. And it on the Switch, you can play up to four players. I think that's true probably on all the – and so, you know, you and I could be playing – um and it's like Oregon Trail where you're in the car and when, when you're in the car you can't do anything you just see all these little things that are happening and they're random so like <clears throat> you know oh your car breaks down a zombie attacks one of your party dies or something like that. but then when you when you arrive at a city you get out of the car and then you're controlling your little characters and you're beating up on the zombies and you're grabbing stuff and it's super fun it's also frustrating because it's random, right? So like you'll be doing really well, and all of a sudden, dysentery. <laughs> can you save your game? You can, but once you die, you have to start over. So saving is only so that you can like maybe put it down for a
0: while. And but if you die, to- you can't reload. You can't reload. Oh, brutal! Yeah.
1: So it's uh, it's that kind of game. <laughs> See, I don't <laughs> I don't
0: like games like that because. But if-
1: it sorry, but it only takes like. If you were lucky, you could probably get get to Canada and finish the game maybe in, like, three hours or something,
0: you know? But still, that's way too long for, <laughs> for my taste. When I was younger, I might have had yeah. time for that. Um, plus, again, stressful. Yeah, it is yeah. stressful. <laughs> um, I, I, I do a lot of, like, oh, um, I need to reload five, yeah, ter- right. five turns ago. <laughs> um, I want it to be easy, yeah, yeah, but yeah. not too easy, obviously. Yeah. But I don't mind games being easy. Um, like, sometimes I play Civilization... And I take over the world without really even attacking anybody. You know, I just sort of defend my borders, and I'm not even really interested in war with anyone. You know, it's just kind of fun to do that action of like building your economy, making sure your people are happy, you know, doing enough diplomacy, building your tech, like SimCity. Yeah, it's basically like SimCity, and which is another game I like, SimCity, and also. Uh, city city skylines, which is a, yeah, right. Which I, I loved playing that game as well. That one came out like five years ago or something. Yeah, something, or maybe longer.
1: So the, the, the I mean the thing about this one though is the real goal. Like sure you can get to Canada, but. It, you don't have to like the, the fun part about it is so much random little stuff and a lot of like inside jokes and you kind of want to just see all the content who are you going to pick up who's going to be you know like one of the things you can you can find is a dog and the dog can become one of the players and the dog can't carry we- well they can carry a weapon but only like in their mouth but they can bite the zombies and you know so there's all these like fun little things about it and since it's cute 8-bit art you don't really mind that it's you know like I've never gotten to Canada but it doesn't matter
0: now co-op games I love to play like yeah. that like if we were at a party or something yeah. like that'd be a blast like you know Mario Kart like I would never play Mario Kart on my own right but I'd love to play with other people right. um, I got a uh, a Oculus Quest right you know the kind of VR that you don't need all the equipment the cables yeah and um, I was obsessed with it for about like one and a half days <laughs> and then I just never picked it up again what really. were you playing with it uh, I played the boxing game Apollo Creed. I played the Star Wars game where you have uh, light lightsabers, sabers, which was kind of interesting. But you know, it, these VR games in essence are games basically from the '80s yeah. that are in VR. Yeah. So I'm waiting for, which I'm sure will happen. I'm waiting for actually good games yeah. that aren't just good for VR, but are actually good games yeah, yeah. to come out in a VR platform because it's like after you get over the novelty of it being in VR, it's like, well, this is kind of, the mechanics are dumb. the rep, It's repetitious. I'm not really challenged. I figured out how yeah. the AI works. Um, and it, it, it just doesn't hold my attention. Um, now, what I understand, you know, the Quest, you can only have certain dumbed-down sort of games. Like if you have the regular... Uh, eight HP Vive and the actual Oculus the actual yeah. Oculus whatever um, you can play the more high end PC based right. games like you can play Skyrim for example but again Skyrim came out on consoles yeah. yeah. Uh, essentially <laughs> like 15 years ago <laughs> yeah I mean it's basically Oblivion which came out a long long time ago and although Skyrim's a lot better than Oblivion but it's basically the same game and like so, 10 years ago. By and still. I can still play Skyrim on my console. Yeah. And, and so um, uh, it, I, I'm just waiting for, like, the games to come out that really, really, you, you know, Beat Saber is one of those games where it's like you can't really play that on your computer. Sure. It's a complete – and I like to play that game. But, again, I'm not really into those kind of actiony games, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, Beat Saber is pretty fun, though.
1: Right. You know, I, I totally agree. So I've had a similar experience with, with VR. And um, this this is fundamentally, I believe, what's what's at stake. And this is what I meant by how when I first saw video games, physics need not apply. And what I was trying to say that, hey, look, in real life, we can pretend all we want that we're actually superheroes flying through the air. But we're not. We know we're not, but we can pretend. But in the game, you can but if you had to actually like with the connect, right? Like if you had to actually jump ten feet to jump ten feet in the game, well, you can't. And even if you are just doing mundane things, like okay, well, the the goal of this game is for me to fight, box, right? But in order to do so, I literally have to box and like duck when I need to duck. And but, well, see, like we are not that good as, 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 as we're not great athletes. We're not great. Uh, superheroes, any of that stuff. What we are good at is we've evolved hand-eye coordination for millennia, <laughs> millions of years. And so we're at the point now where we can pretend to be that good at almost anything as long as we're using our best attributes. And that's the hand-eye coordination. So we can actually control these little things and fly through the air and be super. So I think VR with a normal controller or and or keyboard and mouse or something like that and where you're not actually leveraging the VR for physical movement and physical dancing and all that other stuff, but just because of the immersiveness aspect of it. What was the number one thing in that, in that survey? I Immersion. A, yeah. I think that's where it's going to be, if it is going to be.
0: Yeah. The, there's a big problem with VR in that way, in that uh, in the real world, you have thumbs and fingers yeah. and you can pick things up in the VR world it and the and the Oculus Quest does a pretty good job of it right. actually the this the the controller knows when you actually grip the controller and yeah. then your actual hands in the game grip yeah and then if you actually point with your finger it actually points with your finger in the it's weird it's like it it senses all that you know that that kind right. of censoring. but having but even then it's like it's not exactly right. And, you know, and so it gets a little frustrating sometimes. Like, I'm trying to grab my gun from my holster, yeah. and it's like, I can't fucking grab it.
1: I, I, I fundamentally believe this is why both VR and the Kinect are aiming in the wrong direction. And the Kinect realized that too late after, you know. It's that the goal isn't one-to-one emulation of our capabilities. Because if it were, you're limited by what you can and can't do physically. Imagine just from a from like let's say you are actually handicapped and you're missing an arm, and the game requires two actual arms to play. Well, that sucks,
0: right? And, well, and people are lazy and they don't want to get up. Absolutely. Get the
1: so now imagine that you actually uh, advance the technology to the point where you can actually use your real brain. You don't even need your hands to control the character in the game. It's still your brain, and if if presumably you're using your motor cortex, I suppose, to still kind of control this this character in the game, you're still limited. Like, you are not, you don't have the reflexes of Superman, even in a video game. So the way that video games do this is they they trick you, right? You don't really, uh, when you're playing Call of Duty, you don't have that kind of endurance in real life. You don't have that kind of aim in real life. You don't have any of that stuff. They just trick you. So so it, I think the, the secret is going to be not trying to do one-on-one emulation. Forget hands and arms and legs. Just give me a really good controller, like I can, so I can leverage my my hands, uh, and not to emulate my hands, just so I can control things in the game, and use the immersion because it's a three hundred and sixty view. It has three hundred and sixty surround sound, and give me a game like you're saying that's actually a good game.
0: And they do that to some games. Like yeah. there are flight sims right. in VR. There's uh, there are um, spaceship sims. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's take a break. When we get back, let's answer some of famous patron Linden's questions. Let's do it. So if Steve Jobs were alive today, Mm -hmm. he would be trying to promote his next VR machine. And if Steve Jobs were alive today trying to convince everyone to buy his VR headset and also trying to get people to become patrons of the podcast – how? what would Steve Jobs say? And is what, it
1: public persona Steve Jobs or behind closed doors? Or maybe I'll do a hybrid.
0: <laughs> uh, he's either in an interview or he's on stage.
1: All right. So the, the thing is that for all of human history, we have been bound by our minds and by what we can do with these machines. But you got to understand, there are now buttons. These buttons let you do things that you couldn't even imagine before. Like, with a little quick click, you can send beautiful funds off to support something like psychology in Seattle. And that is something that throughout a millennia, like millions of years, humans have been dreaming of doing. And they've never been able to do it. Now you can do it. Stop this interview. What the hell is going on? Why is that light flashing on me? You're fired. You're fired. You're fired.
0: <laughs> Famous patron Lyndon says, um, uh, Kirk Umberto, is there any empirical support for the old cliche that men marry women like their mothers? Umberto, ah, what do you me. think?
1: <laughs> That's a very interesting one. I have certainly been guilty of looking for, uh, without knowing it really, but looking for traits that were um, probably a replacement for what I wanted my mother to be. <clears throat> um, but ironically... Consciously? No, 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 no. It's just what I mean is that, um, okay, so two things. When I was, I, I, when I look back at, at a lot of the girlfriends that I had or, or relationships I tried to have, uh, I certainly didn't know it consciously at the time. But one thing I was, I was really longing for was female approval, just female approval, which clearly in my mind is, does mommy think I'm okay? Why did she leave? Does she think I'm not okay? But maybe she can still tell me I'm okay. Like that kind of thing, right? So, I was seeking that. But then the weird part is, what seemed to make me more comfortable were some of the traits that I don't like about my mother, like cold detachment. Like you know, I'm here, but I'm not here. So, to
0: answer <laughs> famous patron Lin's question, you were kind of I was kind of trying to marry your mother, but without knowing it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I,
1: I, I've we know that. Uh, I think this works in reverse, too, like gals trying to marry their fathers.
0: Right. So to answer the question, first off, let's expand this question to include all genders and all sexual orientations. I mean, you're saying that men uh, marry women like their mothers. Um, you know, it, it's really a question of do we marry our parents? Mm. And uh, we might focus a little bit on our, uh, you know, if we're heterosexual, we look to our opposite gender parent uh, but really we 're attracted to uh, if we 're if we're attracted to anything we 're attracted to qualities of both of our parents, yeah, maybe particularly of the uh, whatever gender we 're attracted to, but it, it, it's more it 's more a function of when we 're growing up, one we become comfortable with certain kinds of personality traits for someone who grows up with, a, with an aggressive, angry parent, then they are going to be way more comfortable. Yeah. ironically, with anger and aggression and hostility than someone who didn't. And so even if you're not attracted to anger and hostility, at the very least, it just doesn't raise red flags the way right. it would to someone else who never saw that growing up. Um, but yes, we absolutely are attracted to those things because, one, when we inter- we internalize those relationships, so whatever qualities you're pa- we wanted our parents' love and attention. We needed it whoever our caregivers were, who we identified as the, it could be your grandparents, could be your older siblings. And you internalize everything about them uh, because of the way that development and, you know, projective identification works and attachment. It's um, a long story, but we internalize the whole thing as being associated with love. So if you're, if you have a, if you have a loving mother
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and she's also very talkative, and she's also uh, very short. And she also has a big hairdo a lot, all the time. Mm-hmm. And she also likes to wear satiny clothing. Mm-hmm. Well, from the age of zero until five, you're downloading all those attributes as associated with love and attention and nurturance. You, you, don't, just, you don't just absorb the nurturance. You absorb everything about that the tone of her voice the look of her hair the how much she talks the way her clothing feels as she hugs you and all those things become associated with love with love and attention for you and so when you grow up you tend to want to return to that and by that you know by implication you're sort of attracted to your to both of your parents but and we all, so not only is it because we're comfortable and and we're associating it, but we're also trying to correct for what happened in the past. And so all of us have been traumatized by our caregivers on, to some extent, um, you know, either through large ways and small ways of just being like, um, you know, your your parents wouldn't let you stay up all night, and that really hurt yeah. your feelings. That you know that can be very very hard on a kid, even though they need to go through that. And when we're older, we seek. To recreate those relationships so that we can experience them in a new way, in a way that's more satisfying. And the only way we can do that is if we find partners who are actually at least similar to our parents. Having said all that, this is very hard to measure. Everything I've been saying so far, total psychobabble. (laughs) Because how do we measure, how do we answer the question, are people attracted to their parents? You know, people would be, well, you know, uh, just look to see if there's similarities. Well, what Mm -hmm. similarities are we going to look at? <laughs> you know, are we going to look at height, skin yeah. color, uh personality, what part of personality? How do you measure that part of personality? Their preferences, their politics, their pheromones, uh the way they talk, like there's too many factors and how do you even lock down that person has a personality like that person? We can't really even answer those questions right now. You can sort of approximate it like big five personality traits, but it's really hard. It becomes kind of a horoscope thing, right? Like, ah, this totally fits. Right. Meaning, <laughs> meaning that, uh, if you look, if you cherry pick the data, right, you will find similarities between your spouse and your parents you know uh, if if you look for if you scan enough qualities some of them are randomly uh by nature going to coincide um you know it's it's like the analogy i always say is like um well i won't go into it but anyway yeah um so but there is evidence that we are highly influenced by certain uh things like uh social class we tend to marry uh people who sure. Are in our parents' social class, we tend to marry people who have the same accent as our parents. We tend to marry people and hang out with people who have the same religion, the same political views. Is that is that? Do you think because you know it it could just be
1: that's the only circle you're in, so therefore you really are not invited to parties with rich people, and you're not invited to you know whatever or vice versa.
0: Yeah, so that's absolutely a factor. But uh, even when you just uh, survey people based yeah. on like, here's 10 people. Who do you prefer to hang out with? I see. I see. We tend to say, oh, I want to hang out with that person. Okay. And that person just, you know, happens to look and sort of act like our our, our parents. Right? Um, we do this for a number of reasons. One, we're uh, familiar with it. Uh, things that are unfamiliar are a little scary to us. And we also kind of are always looking for our parents' approval. And one of the ways that we do that, whether we like it or not, is to kind of uh, marry people who we think our parents are going to approve of. Right. Um, so you know, but like I said, kind of psychobabbley, in that we really just don't have any idea. And it, it's one of those questions that it just depends on what you look at. Because, mm-hmm. uh, um, but most people who study this will say that yes, uh, we tend to be attracted to people who have a lot in common with our parents. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about Evil Umberto. Evil Umberto? Like my evil twin? (laughs) Someone wrote in and said, I wonder what you think of the idea of someone being evil. It seems as though you guys think, or you think, me, it seems as though you think that every pathological behavior and personality stems from some kind of trauma, attachment rupture, or injury from early childhood. I think about animals, cats in particular, because I have four of them. I have one cat who I was given by a neighbor when she was just a kitten. She was not mistreated or neglected. She is highly neurotic and skittish. It seems like she was born that way. Can people be born that way too? Can people be born evil? Umbeto.
1: So I, I don't believe in, uh, I don't believe in absolute evil and good in that uh, there is no objective comparison to be made there against anything but if you happen to for example be uh religious at least in some kinds of religion then certainly you could imagine that well this person might be aligned with with hell or, or some equivalent and therefore they are inherently evil I, I i don't believe in that now of course that's not to say that by my human perspective there aren't people in this world that are uh that i certainly can call pragmatically evil um and how much of that came from their upbringing or just, you know, all of a sudden they have a tumor in their head or they're psychopathic genetically or, or all these things. There there might be combinations of factors. Uh, so the, the ultimate answer for me is, technically speaking, in the sort of religious connotation of it, no, I don't believe people are evil. But I do believe that there are people that are more predisposed to doing what we consider bad actions. Or we might even call them evil.
0: Yeah, good answer. I agree. The other way I'll answer this is we don't really know. Um, you know, And we probably won't know if people are born evil or not for another 50 to 100 years, maybe even longer. We don't even have really the precursors to a science to answer that question. Why do people act the way that they act? Um, we probably even once we do answer the question, computers will probably tell us the answer and the answer will be so complicated. The computer will probably be the only one who even understands that answer. And because the brain is a pile of mush that somehow manages through billions of connections, somehow manages to produce a consciousness and motivation and somewhat of a consistency of, of personality usually. And, to answer that, you know, the way we're answering the question is so simplistic. It's sort of like uh, if people, uh, say, a thousand years ago, were asking the question of themselves. Um, is is Atlas holding up the sky or is the sky holding up Atlas right. or something like that? It's like um, your question is so wrong to begin with right. that... I can't even really answer the question. Because right, so, he's standing on turtles. <laughs> so to answer the question, are people born evil? Is Which is a natural question to ask and a question and a, and a conversation that I will entertain sometimes. It comes from such an ignorant place to begin with that people a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now will say like, they were so dumb back then, they didn't even know what question to ask. Sure. Um, because uh, the the... The causality of human behavior or really any any animal 's behavior um, is so complex, particularly humans. We are bizarre creatures. we have thoughts and futures and pasts and and abstractions and plans and moods and interpretations and narratives and stories and inspirations and emotions and, and you know it's a bizarre mixture of strangeness i mean most americans are having sex without trying to procreate <laughs> Mo- most sexual acts in western society 99.9% of sexual acts or more are done purposefully to not procreate mm-hmm. we are bizarre organisms and uh, 99% of what we eat, we don't need to be eating. <laughs> um, most of what we do has nothing to do with our survival. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's just bizarre. So we just don't know. We don't know the answer to that question. Are people born evil? Or are they not? Um, you know, genetics, uh, it's probably due to a lot of things, including genetics. Um, and we have to define evil, like, you know, if we're talking about Charlie Manson or this kind of, yeah. or a, a mass killer or something. Do genetics play a role? Probably. Ep- epigenetics play a role. Absolutely. Personality mm-hmm. development? Yes. Culture? Yes. Trauma? Yes. Everything. The, the, Everything. <laughs> their, their biology, you know, that their current mood of, yeah. of the day, you know, what they ate that day, um, how much alcohol they drank. Everything plays a role for sure. Um, Almost every evil person, I, but having said all that, almost every quote unquote evil person I've studied or met has had significant trauma yeah. in their lives. Now, a lot of people have significant trauma. So, is it that you have to have the significant trauma plus something <laughs> plus the genetic yeah. disposition to do that? Maybe so. Hard to know though. So, it seems that in most cases, evil is at the very least caused by mistreatment and possibly dispositional traits. Um, But some evil people uh, seem to have born that way, meaning that they didn't have any massive mistreatment and they had a good enough childhood. But these people are rare. Um, I've actually never uh, met a person like that. Um, It could be because I'm biased. Again, there's no way for anyone to know whether I'm biased about that or not. I mean, in
1: theory... Ted Bundy, in theory, based on what he says, what his family said, in theory, he wasn't terribly
0: abused. No, no. We went over this. Um, I, well, possibly. I mean, certainly according to him.
1: That's what I mean. I mean, like, I know know that there was all sorts of issues. But what I mean is, based on how horribly he turned out, by our standards, uh, it's not like he was, you know, a child slave victim for 10 years from the age of one or something like that, you know
0: no but that 's not even the sort of mistreatment that uh, I is usually present usually it 's the yeah. sort of abandonment treatment that he absolutely did experience
1: i, uh, I i'm compound, or i 'm compounding that with how many people experience that kind of abandonment yeah you know, yeah uh, well anyways, my, my point was simply like it is quite possible that you could still end up being way more predisposed to ending up a certain way, whether or not you you, you experienced that uh, that abandonment or those, those issues.
0: Yeah. The other thing is that we tend to look at some individuals and some behaviors as being like, something's wrong with that person. Something There's, there's something different, and we need to put them in this other category. You know, Ted Bundy, uh, mass killers, they must be in this other category. They're, well, they're, but, they're, they're, they're right. not like the rest of us. <laughs> but okay? it's a
1: natural thing because of bell curves, right? Like but, Jordan is another individual.
0: Okay, But so are uh, people who, you know, get a lot of tattoos. Sure. Or people who um, hate to sneeze. Well, sure, Uh, yeah. I mean, there are extremes from the norm. So are podcasters. Yeah. Uh, So are people who go into psychology. Um, You know, but no one claims that I was born a podcaster. I made a series of choices to become a podcaster, and... That's another important thing, an important way of looking at these mass killers is they made a lot of choices to get where they are. And to ignore the choice is to ignore reality that they chose it. Uh, A lot of people have fantasies of killing people. A lot of people have no empathy. A lot of people have mistreatment. These people chose this road and they chose it. And although very few people, if any of the famous ones, were compelled, you know, through delusion or something. But even then, plenty of delusional people get told by the voices to kill people, and most people never do. So yeah. it's important to recognize that we have free will and, in a lot of ways. And, uh, we're, and uh, like, I woke up this morning and I put on this shirt. And although i 'll always make the cultural argument as well, uh, no one denies that I chose to wear this shirt at least in part. I had yeah. something to do with that in terms of my own volition well some some people choose that lifestyle, and we don't have to put this genetic label on it
1: well and, and to some extent like the, the way i would I would characterize it at this point in the way I think about these things is it doesn't matter whether they chose in a ultimate way or not, um, as a society, we decide what kind of inputs we want to give people's brains going forward to try to minimize societal damage. And one of the inputs we decide to give people is like, hey, if you committed certain ac- acts, we're going to put you in jail. And that's the set of inputs we are going to feed your brain from here on out. And then some societies, as they're doing that, add other brain inputs, like in Norway, they might make it a more welcoming environment, blah, blah, But But that's the only thing we can do. So like the only thing we can do, because no one can answer, like, is, is a human truly free or not? Or would you have always picked that shirt? We don't know. But what we do know is we can give new inputs into the system. And that's what we... So just because someone killed someone because when they were little, they, they were abused, it's like, that's a sad story. That's terrible. We still have to, as a society, give new inputs to that individual. And that new input might be, uh, you're in jail and you're going to go through this re-education or you're going to go through something. I, so we can't just look at it and be like, well, I see why you did it, therefore you're excused. Like, that doesn't work for our society. Uh, but that's
0: different from but saying... But no one's saying that, you understand. Like, no, people do. Well, there are people that make that argument. I'm not saying that.
1: Uh, well, you're going further the other direction, but that's fine. Like I, 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 I you, You're more on the... Uh, more on the side of like they the, made the, active the, choices. The so act, they therefore they should definitely be punished.
0: The question of why someone does something is largely a mystery that we Just can, exactly what I'm saying. We yeah. can conceptualize. yeah um, and uh, the other question of what do we do with these people is related, I suppose, to us trying to conceptualize and answer that question as to why they did it. But at the same time uh justice isn't necessarily interested in at least in america that in- you're
1: making you're making the same point I'm making from a different angle good it's just that what i'm what I'm adding is I don't care whether or not they made a choice because I don't know if they did sadly or not sadly, it doesn't matter. the net effect for our society was the same people were were murdered or whatever so we have to act because we want to act because we want our society to operate in a certain way. And the net effect of that of that is you. we need to reprogram your brain from this moment on. If it works. Uh, well, I mean, when I say reprogram, I don't mean we're going to be effective at changing behavior. What I mean is give new inputs into the system. And and I'm being a little obtuse here. I just like new inputs is anything. Our brain is constantly getting new inputs. So if every day of my life my inputs are waking up in a small little dark apartment with no vitamin d and all these other things and blah, blah blah that's one set of inputs if then i get transplanted into a tropical island and every day is is living on the beach it's like completely set of a uh, different set of inputs so that's the thing we can control as a society is what inputs we give an individual. And that's why if we give more nurturing inputs when they're little, if we give more lit- nurturing a school environment, more all these things, we can raise the odds that those inputs would net out positively for society.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we're but not it, doing enough in that way of right. public health to facilitate the um, reduction in mistreatment of right. children.
1: And then I guess my ultimate point is even if we did everything perfectly, the parents were great, the schools were great, the society is great, and that individual ended up still sadly murdering or doing whatever, I'm still not ready to conclude that there is such a thing as absolute, oh, well, then that individual is just evil, which is I think what's the difference between you were saying like we, we like to think of Ted Bundy as like different and I was simply making a point of like I think we think of anyone outside of the norm as different. But that doesn't excuse or, you know, like, like we think of Jordan as different. Like, Michael Jordan was clearly outside of the norm. And would everyone else who had practiced the same amount have been as good and successful as him? We don't know. Did he make, make all his choices? Like in some ways, but... Then so actually,
0: Michael Jordan's a really good example of what the case, the, the point I'm trying to illustrate, yeah. which is that uh, people often, particularly people who aren't athletes will point to michael jordan as like the question of was michael jordan born a good athlete what, what do you think most people would say
1: uh including me i would say well yeah definitely
0: <laughs> definitely born a good athlete he, yeah he had a certain body type that lent itself to athletics um, but the emphasis that people will put on his genetics is ridiculous sure uh, a lot of people are born like Michael Jackson. Right, right. Or Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Jordan. Sorry. Um, a lot of people are born like Michael Jackson, yeah. actually. And the, especially Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson, the amount of time that these individuals spent on their craft. Uh, and you can actually see in Michael Jordan's career moments where he wasn't very good. Right. because he hadn 't had he hadn 't dedicated himself enough uh, to the craft, and he got better um, so sure, he had the genetic disposition you know if he was born without the ability to walk an extreme example, right. or frankly, if he was born like me, he never would have risen to the heights that that he did but uh, uh, but there are a lot of people who are born with right. the natural talents that Michael Jordan had but there was only one Michael Jordan and that was because of his choices and his hard work. And in a similar way, a serial killer, a lot of people are born with the in all likelihood. We we can't really answer that question, but I would suspect that a lot of people are born with the same genetic qualities so to speak of dispositional personality traits as a Ted Bundy, but Ted Bundy was the one and we're mistreated in a, in a similar way. But Ted Bundy was the one who made the choices to go down that road.
1: Right. So I think, practically speaking...
0: So in pra- other words, I'm saying Ted Bundy is the Michael Jordan of serial killer. That's right.
1: <laughs> so practically speaking, in a pragmatic sense, we have to maintain that narrative. Because as I said, we have to feed the right kind of inputs if we want the... Increase the odds of good outputs. Exactly. So if we don't feed that narrative to people, if we tell them, "Hey, you're not. You, your actions don't matter. You don't. You never make a decision." Well, that's a terrible input.
0: Well, one, you'll never get a Michael Jordan because right. no one will ever work, and two, you'll miss the opportunity to help the 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 young Ted Bundys of right. the world avoid doing what they're going to do.
1: The the only uh, pedantic point that I that the hill that I die on nowadays is that the, we. You know, we say, well, the genetic, Michael Jordan had no choice on his genetics, so that would have been an unfair advantage or a lucky advantage or whatever. I extend that to all of it. It's all luck all the way down. It's lucky that he was born when he was born, from who he was born, where he was born. It's lucky the way his parents were with him, for better or for worse, because all those little inputs were inputs that lucked out to the way they did. It's lucky that his brain had just the right amount of willpower for whatever set of reasons, that he did get himself to go to the gym. Because if you don't look at it that way, you're basically concluding that there is some little magical thing that's devoid of his physicality and his environment and his genetics wow. that was the thing. And so I'm actually saying it's all luck all the way down. I mean it's an old
0: debate around consciousness that I don't want to get into. That. But
1: but you, you of all people because you're an environmental construct, constructionist in a lot, large way. If you don't admit that the environment is just as much part of the luck of an individual. Just then, as much. Right? Then we'd have a problem with 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 your position, but it, you, it just depends do. on
0: the way you're looking at it. Um, do you, I don't disagree with the yeah. perspective that uh, the way you're framing it in terms of luck and of in a sense predetermined uh, sort of things, lots of factors playing yeah. into it um, in terms of what makes Michael Jordan Michael Jordan. Uh, but it it just depends on the lens you're looking through it. You know. It's potato-potato. You look at it, in one lens, it's luck, and in some way predetermined. In another way you look at it, it's Michael Jordan's conscious choice. There's Again, there, there's no distinction between those two things. It just depends on, on how you look at it, and neither can be disproven because they're both essentially true, because they're both essentially pointing at the same thing, calling it something different. Yep. Um, let's talk about art. Someone wanted to talk about that. What is art and music... Uh, psychologically speaking why is something that serves no obvious purpose uh, why is it so important to us Beto
1: well first of all what serves a purpose well we could we could take it from a simply organist or organ, uh, an organism that is trying to survive in the physical world that we're experiencing we could say that important to us is oxygen uh, followed by you know water followed by some food fine and then all the Maslow stuff but but to say that art is not important is sort of like pre-concluding that you being alive is somehow super important. And I'm not ready to pre-conclude that. I'm ready to say, well, I don't know, what is important? Is it important that the earth revolves around the sun? It's important to us because we want to be around. But what's important? So this important word is already like like loaded with meaning. So to me, my personal feeling about it is that just breathing oxygen and eating food is sort of like just the entry table stakes to a, a, a no-winner game, whereas music and art are the things that you want to be breathing the oxygen and eating the food for. And I'm, I'm minimizing. There's other things, of course, relationships and things like that. But, but without the music and the art, all the other stuff is pointless. So to me, that's actually the most important stuff. The most meaningful stuff is the creation is the the, th- the things we create, and especially the things we create that are, that
0: have never been seen before? Yeah, that's a good question. Why is something that serves no obvious purpose is so important to us? Uh, it is kind of weird that a painting by some old dead white guy is worth millions of dollars and is revered, when if you just put it like in a secondhand store and didn't tell anybody. At least with some of the paintings, people would be like, "Yeah, whatever." Uh, so it, it's all about, and and for some people, that negates the that kind of art because that's only one. That's only a, you know. There's lots of other art that, that you know your kids will do art, um, and that's art. Uh, why is it important to us? Well, it's hard to know, uh, but I would say that it's important because of meaning. You know why. Is your nation important to you? Why is um, uh, I don't know. Like, like, uh, there's a lot of things that I'm better and I could do for money, yep. um, and we make money from this podcast. But for many years, we didn't make a penny. In fact, we lost money on this podcast for the first seven years of the podcast. So seven years, every week, especially me, spending all this time on this right. thing that was. Producing no actual benefit to my life. Yeah. Why was I doing it? No financial benefit. <laughs> no financial benefit, but also, you know, the li- There weren't that many listeners. Um, there was no concrete thing that I got out of it. But what I did get out of it was meaning. And
1: that's concrete.
0: <laughs> okay. It, it, it's yeah. it's meaning. It's uh it's something I got meaning. Like I was connecting with people on the internet. I was. Uh, advocating for things I wanted to advocate for. I was learning things that I wanted to learn. I was keeping my brain sharp. These are all, you know, I I guess you're calling it concrete. I'm going to call them intangibles. And art's the same way. Um, You know, why do Umberto and I write music and record it when we absolutely know that um, 99 out of 100 listens will be done by us, the the (laughs) artist, and that... Um, we'll be lucky if another person even cares to listen to it. Well, we do it because it's expressive. It feels good. It's meaningful to, you know, hold that up. Why does a whittler whittle a little bear and put it on their windowsill for only them to see? Because it's meaningful to us. We like it. Um, and,
1: and I mean, I guess that, that thing is I, I question that question about purpose in the first place. No obvious purpose presupposes that other things have obvious purpose. Like, a building has an obvious purpose. And you could say, well, sure, it houses humans. I'm like, so? What's the obvious purpose of that? And and it's like, we're only looking at this from, like, this subsistence mentality. Well, we need to live to to another day. Well, yeah, sure, that's the genetic programming to survive for no reason. No purpose. Mm. Whereas music and art, I would argue, for me, have more purpose. But in, in either case, it's like... It's hard to argue that that is or is not purposeful.
0: Uh, This person also asked, why do some people feel compelled to make art while others don't? Uh, I've been wondering why I'm doing this to myself as a career, LOL. Berto, what do you think?
1: So there are people that I know that, uh, that build furniture. I don't know if they would call what they do art. I don't know if other people would call what they do art. But they like doing it. They like working with wood. They like being in a shop. They like the idea of like, you know, finding specific kinds of woods and all this. To me, this sounds completely boring. I don't think I'd be good at it. The whole idea of working in a shop with with, like, uh, immediately turns me off. Why is that? In the meantime, the idea right now of like grabbing that guitar over there and just strumming and coming up with a little melody line don't touch my guitar <laughs> oh, i'm getting i'm getting a little a little heavy here uh so i think it's just a matter of preferences with like with everything else some people like running other people hate running but they like swimming other people you know it, and and so it's kind of hard to answer the why unless you can also answer the why of like why do i like horror movies and you don't like horror movies you know yeah.
0: it's kind of hard yeah i don't know the answer to it uh I think there are certain personality traits to an artist. Uh, One is uh, someone who's sort of open to things and wants to experience things. Also, uh, being a little narcissistic is also a motivation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I love singing alone, and I'm the only one who can hear me. Uh, But, you know, I also... Like to be on stage and yeah. uh, when I'm comfortable. Um, anyway, famous patron Lyndon has some more questions for us. Recently sent. Uh, what is something a lot of people assume about you and Berto that is completely untrue? So about you. Right. So what's something a lot of people assume about you that is completely untrue?
1: For some reason, a lot of people seem to assume that I that I switch jobs a lot, which is completely untrue. Uh. That's one thing. Another thing is. I I bet you people assume that I'm very confident in a lot of situations or maybe most situations. Um, And I'll say that I have an ability to project as if I am confident, but that I am often very non-confident and sort of terrified in my head about a lot of situations. Uh, Anything to do with manual effort like, if, if we talked about like if you're like, hey, Beryl, can you help me put that shelf up? here Here's a hammer, like just nail it. I'm immediately like terrified. I'm going to screw it up. I don't know what you were asking me to do. What's a hammer? But outside, I'll be like, sure, of course I can help you. You know, like these kinds of things. So I, I think that I do a, a decent job of projecting a certain kind of confidence, but it's not always true. In fact, a lot of times it's not true under the surface.
0: Yeah, that's a narcissistic thing as well. Uh, in that, for narcissistic people to uh, cope with the massive insecurity, or at least the degree of insecurity that one has, they cope with it by um, trying to act like they are not only just kind of confident, but they're very, very confident so that at least other people are tricked into be- into believing that they're confident and that somehow provides some nar- some narcissistic supply. But what it does is it denies, because I'm like that too, us the opportunity to get some help from yeah, other people, totally. and also just emotional help yeah. of just like being seen and understood. Yeah, that's it's funny because I wrote the exact same thing down. <laughs> was um, the people probably assume, and I've heard this before, that I'm 100 percent confident when um, there's just I'm um, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, I, I'll never forget. Uh, I went to graduate school to get my master's twenty three or four years ago. And I in my master's degree, I felt completely out of my league. I was a fish out of water. Mm. I'm a football jock <laughs> in a grunge band who was in a fraternity <laughs> who worked, you know, in Bellevue in like Microsoft y businessy stuff. Yeah. And I went to therapy for you know a few months but i don't hang out with liberals i don't hang out with uh granola types really i don't yeah. i don't know therapist language i certainly didn't study a lot of sociology or psychology prior to that i didn't i didn't know the major figures <laughs> i barely understood anything i was completely you know of all the students in my classes i always felt like I was the most mm-hmm. ignorant, uh, and I've told this story before. But in quarter one, we studied empathy. Mm. You know, which is a pretty obvious thing for therapists to study. Yeah, I had no idea what my classmates were talking about. You know, the, <laughs> the professor just throws out, "Okay, let's yeah. talk about empathy." All my classmates, including Bob, okay. Empathy this, empathy that, and I'm just like, how come everyone knows this stuff? Like what <laughs> what world did they come from? <laughs> so the whole time I'm in graduate school, <sighs> That's I'm like lost and I know it. And I wasn't afraid to kind of express that too. Like okay. I don't know what's happening. The last day of my last day of class, we're sitting in this small antioch circle of about, you know, five or six students. Mm-hmm. It's my last day of class and all of us are graduating. And so each of us is going around sort of giving appreciations and, you know, people are like to, you know, to Jennifer, oh, you're so nice. You're always supportive. Mm -hmm. You know, you're so smart. You're (laughs) going to be a great therapist. Oh, John, you know, you're, you're (laughs) a sweet guy. And, you know, I know you get a little insecure sometimes, but you know, you're going to be a great, and I felt like everyone was really nailing everyone Mm -hmm. around the room. Everyone gets to me, fellow classmates. Yeah. Most of them, half to most, said, "Uh, So, Kirk, you always seemed like you knew what you were doing. Oh. (laughs) And, you you know, I I think you're going to do really well because you just, you don't seem to be as scared as the rest of us. Wow. (laughs) And, and you're so, you're just, you just seem so. Competent all the time. That's hilarious. Like you don't really need anyone's help, and and you you know you're doing great. I mean, part of it was I was fired from my first internship, (laughs) and and so I was very open to my first supervisor, Mm -hmm. and he emotionally abused me while he was my supervisor. I didn't know he was emotionally or at least I felt he was emotionally abusing me, but I just blamed it on myself. Yeah. And then, after just like six to eight weeks of supervision into like a year long internship, he blasts me with this two page account <laughs> of every unethical, horrible thing I had done. Oh my God. And, and, all, the, and all the different um, things had to do with me being open with him. Like, mm. he, he would ask me about my sexuality. Mm-hmm. He asked me about one of the things he and I told him I was just yeah. like well he's my supervisor I'm going to be open with him. Yeah. He asked me about uh, my views on w- how do I treat people who are uh, addicted to alcohol and as a therapist and I said well you know I don't know because I ha- I'm not a th- I'm not an experienced therapist this is my my first two weeks of being a therapist <laughs> I don't even have a client yet. Yeah. But I've heard in class that. Some people believe that you're supposed to refer them out to get them sober, and then we can work with them as uh-huh. as therapists. But I also heard that uh, some people will say, "I'll work with you, and I'll, I'm going to encourage you to get sober and uh, encourage you to go to treatment." But uh-huh. I'm not going to terminate with you as a client because I, you know, I'm going to try to help you get through this time. Um, that's basically what I said, which yeah. is you know the right answer. Sure. Well in his blast to me and one of the points of reasons why he was firing me was because I had an unethical approach to treating people with alcohol <laughs> and and I and I was gonna treat them and let them drink essentially. Oh my god. And uh so after that, <laughs> that sounds so crazy. So after that it was Oh, I'm so sorry you
1: had to go through that.
0: Yeah. I almost didn't become a therapist. I when he fired me, I was like, Okay, well that's that. I guess I'm gonna go back to business yeah. world. And then I had someone convince me to stay. But um, I, and incidentally, like, if you want to read that full story by my book, Multi-Role Clinical Supervision, I write the first chapters a lot about that whole event, which kind of began my journey of trying to figure out um, and learning just how shitty the average supervisor is. Because he wasn't the only abusive supervisor I have. Um, so uh, my point was... Um. That. What was I even talking about?
1: Well, so you you were talking about how, uh, y- you know, you were dealing with this situation. Oh,
0: so yeah. with him, I after became very closed, and I I, I can be kind of aloof anyway. Mm-hmm. But after this guy, I think I really became aloof because I, I was just like. I need to be on my P's and Q's. Yeah. I need to not extend myself. I can't answer authentically because what if it's the wrong answer? I have to be very careful with what I say. So maybe that was part of it. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, the last day, everyone's just like, you you just you're got so it all confident. figured out. You got figure it figured out. <laughs> and I was 100% sure that I was the least confident person in that class. <laughs> and everyone is saying, wow. I'm all they can say. Ab- and none of them said like, you're a nice guy. <laughs> You know, you're very supportive. Like the only thing they could say about me was that, man, you're just a cool guy. Yeah. You just seem to got it all figured out in a good way. You know, they weren't being mean about it. And I was like, how did that happen? Yeah. How is it that I, on the inside, am utterly terrified all the time? Right. And somehow I'm giving off this impression that I've got it all figured out. Why is that happening? Right. You know, it just has to do with the way I was raised and the coping mechanisms <sighs> I have. Like when I'm terrified, like I just freeze and try to act like everything's fine because I'm trying to be safe. But yeah. the, the vibe I give off is one of aloof confidence. And you and I have talked about it on my side how,
1: uh, and I do it less and less as I get older, but... Uh, I can give off a vibe of not only I'm confident, but actually somehow inciting some types of people to want to knock me down a peg or two. Right. By like, well, I guess I'm going to make fun of that guy because he shouldn't be this confident, damn it. Right, exactly. (laughs) Or something like that. And so um, I also can relate to the whole abusive uh, supervisor, like manager thing, like um, in that, you know that there was this one occasion uh one one experience I had in in my job that was really like that where all of a sudden I got presented with all these bad things I was doing or whatever right uh and and a lot of it had to do with me just naively being too open with people and sharing my thoughts and things like this and then it all kind of got used against me in a in a court you know and Um, that feeling is horrible. Yeah. Especially when you depend on these people to guide you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Uh, Lyndon asks also, what did you and Umberto make of the rave scene?
1: The rave scene in a movie? Or or no, like the actual rave scene culture. Oh, right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So first of all, I hate scenes. I don't like scenes. I don't like large groups of people doing stuff I don't like oh I'm straight edge. I'm grunge. I'm this I hate it. I've always hated it. I don't like wearing the clothes because we're this is the kind of people we are. Um so I definitely the rave scenes rubbed me the wrong way. And I I, I didn't understand to this day I still don't understand I guess it's related to the drugs, but I didn't get like the lights and the little suckers in their mouths and the little backpacks and the little like kitty, like how kitty it was. And I didn't like I don't like it. But the music, I like the music. <laughs> and, and, you know, when I would go to one with friends, like I went with Ron a couple things like those huge parties in Seattle that, mm-hmm. you know, I had fun. I danced all night. It was great. I just wasn't into the scene.
0: Yeah, I- I'll agree with that. I actually wrote a song making fun of ravers uh, in the 90s. It's actually called Candy Raver because there were different ravers. You had mm-hmm. candy ravers and, like, goth ravers. And uh, if you go on Spotify, people out there, and you go to my band, Bread Knife Incident, on my third album, Cozy, I actually have a song called Candy Raver in which I'm basically – its a, I do a kind of uh, call back and forth between mm-hmm. – uh, there's this candy raver guy who it, it, a lot of frat guys are trying to buy his drugs mm. and they're in the bathroom at a can at a rave okay. ev- event. And, um, he is, is just like, um, no, I don't have any more drugs or it's just, it's just this conversation <laughs> and the frat guys are making fun of him and he's making fun of the frat guys. I see. <laughs> and anyway, so, um, now when I think of the rave scene, I, I was al- I was alive and at dance clubs before there was a rave scene, really. Yeah. Um, in 1990, I uh, fell in with this crowd that was really big into the dance clubs, and this is before raves were at least popular in Seattle anyway. Yeah. And it was called the house music scene. They called it house music. Mm. This would be like C&C Music Factory, yeah. D. Light, uh, those kinds of bands. Right. And it was a crazy scene. You know, it was like all the cool people in Seattle. You had to know the right person. There were definite clicks at the clubs, you know, mm-hmm. Oh, there's so-and-so and his entourage and the bouncers all knew each other. And, uh, the big place to, to go in Seattle was called celebrity, okay. which is where, um, Trinity is now. I'm not quite sure. Oh, interesting. Or maybe Dutch Ned's or one of those places. Um, and, uh, I was, you know, I was 19 <laughs> and you had to dress the dress. Oh, George Michael was really big in that group too. You had to, like, I remember we would dress in these really, uh, really uh, short shorts. Oh, really? Like <laughs> like cut off jeans, uh-huh. cut off jeans and like a a, bl- a white tank top. Oh. And big combat boots.
1: What? Okay. And,
0: and mirror sunglasses. Okay. And your, your hair had to be real kind of... Uh, kind of military cut, you know, real kind of short for the time. But anyway, there was a whole scene, and and I loved it because I was 19, and what did I know? Uh, Neighbors was another kind of part of that scene as well. Um, I mean, now Neighbors is is full of uh, a whole different crowd, but back then it was actually mostly gay people. But anyway, so I was really into that. And then when the rave scene came out, um, I kind of felt like I'd already been through the Mm. whole Dance music and um, you know club scene. Yeah, and so when they started calling them raves, I was like, "Why are you calling them raves? You're, it's just a fucking dance party. <laughs> you yeah, <know>? yeah. <laughs> it, it's just a DJ and a thing." Or and then and then and then it became popular with really young people, and then you had these gigantic things right. like. They they used to have them at the like pier one of the piers by the ferry terminal yeah they uh, this like one rave group used to rent out this gigantic terminal for for raves but they were always kind of illegal because oh okay. and and they would do that they would like they'd get arrested they'd get a ticket but they would have sold so many tickets uh, that it didn't matter anyway and <laughs> so there's all these little these little it was always like and this is again before the Internet, so you had to get these flyers. They were always okay. like these really trippy psychedelic flyers that only some people got. You know, it's had that air of exclusivity. And then you fast forward a few more years, and then the raves got totally fucked out. You know, like (laughs) radio stations were putting on "quote unquote" raves. Sure. You know, and they were getting into the Manchester music scene.
1: Okay, because like when I was going to raves, it was way the hell after that. When like United States of Consciousness and stuff, those Mm. huge things and stuff. But it wasn't. Everyone knew about it. Like it was nothing underground about it.
0: Right. So uh, I saw that whole (laughs) thing evolve and i didn't really like it from the beginning and i was never into all the psychedelic drugs uh that was just not my thing and so uh, uh but i didn't really even associate the drugs with the rave scene because mm-hmm. there were certainly a, a lot of drugs in the house music scene it was just like anyway it just it felt like it got real trendy real fast and um and also, it got younger and younger. I mean, like, 13-year-old ah. kids were going to raves, and I was just like, why Why <laughs> as a 25-year-old man would I want to go to a 13-year-old yeah, party? Yeah. You know, it just seemed really stupid. The
1: thing I used to love, I, I definitely loved it um, because I grew up in a dance culture in Colombia, you know, and before moving here, I, our parties, all the parties, were dance parties, but they were Colombian dance parties, you know, like Latin dance parties, uh, which meant two things. One, it was never like... You dancing by yourself. It was always dancing with a couple, right? And uh, you needed to know, learn the steps. You couldn't just, like, fake your way. Like, you had to know the steps.
0: But all the parties, all of them had dancing. Yeah, I mean, just to put a fine point on it, last year when I went down with you to Bogota, we were with your family pretty much the whole time. Right. And there were a few different parties, one of which was in the dead of the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. On like a Sunday at like two, <laughs> and it was your grandmother's birthday party, yeah, a surprise birthday party. And your grandma's like eighty or no, something, n- 92. 92. yeah. And so, sorry. so then you have yeah. all the generations. You have you know the older generation; they're in their sixties or something. Yeah. So it's like your parents' generation, yeah. and then it was our generation of yeah. late forties, yeah. and then you had the next generation of like the twenties, and yeah. then you had another generation of like ten-year-olds, <laughs> yeah. and yet it turned into this dance party yeah. and the music from minute 1 was blasting <laughs> yeah like crazy like and it was this there was this guy who had a keyboard and a mm-hmm. drum machine and a kicking pa system <laughs> yeah. in a small room yeah 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 like like think like um i don't know just like a big rec room essentially right. and he is jamming and singing and dancing and it's this latin music and it is loud. <laughs> and everyone old to young they're all dancing. Yeah. And-, and 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 the gringo like me sitting in the corner I'm just I'm kind of hung over from the night before. Um, <laughs> so and are like oh why is it so loud? <laughs> and I'm like I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to drink with Umberto and his friends later tonight so I I just have to like chill right here for yeah. the and all your aunts were trying to grab me to dance yep, and yep. I'd be like, Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I'm so, such a terrible Latin dancer that it just is embarrassing.
1: So coming from that, and I moved when I'm fifteen, you know, so that that's what I've been exposed to. But I've been going to these dance parties since I was like twelve, you know, like or eleven. So it's and the thing that I love doing here is uh going when we would go to a dance is because I wanted to hear the the new wave music you know the Cure Depeche Mode Nine Inch Nails uh, and then even like Skinny Puppy or stuff like this and I loved dancing to it and I loved sitting there and dancing and it was a completely different style of dancing it was me uh, just doing whatever it was very freeing uh, me and my friend Ty Verzoni, we would a lot of times just the two of us on the dance floor going crazy. So I love that. And then I, I I really loved the underground dance club in the U District because that's the kind of music they played. I loved dancing there. But to me, it was never about uh, substances back then. Like I certainly wasn't drinking then. I wasn't taking any drugs. It was just the dancing and the music, and I loved it. Uh, so by the time that I was years and years later being invited to these kind of uh, dance things – I have to say, for me, it felt like a lot of the point was the drugs. Like, I felt like I like I didn't partake much, but I, I, I got the sense that for a lot of people, it was like, because they, they made a big deal out of it. Oh, we're going to get this special blue Molly this weekend, and, and then we're going to get this other thing, and, and they would talk a lot about it and plan a lot about it and then take it, and then it was a big part of the thing. So, for me, that that, that aspect as well was sort of like really not that interesting.
0: Yeah. Another Linden question. What's the longest you've ever been awake and what was it like?
1: Oh my God, three days and it was terrible and I nearly lost a leg. So <laughs> I'm I'm serious. I'm what? dead serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you're, I cannot you're not
1: expecting that.
0: wait to hear this story. You're not
1: expecting that. <laughs> yeah, man. Um it was tough. It was tough potatoes. So um because what what happened is I was, I was working and, you know, when you're young, or at least when I was young, I associated the, the length of time you're working on a thing with how good you're doing at it or how, how macho you are being about the thing or whatever it is. So, so we're, we're doing this, this project towards the end of the project and I'm sort of a leader on the team. So I'm like, all right, well, we're going to work late into the night and then this first night I work all night through and then it's the next day no sleep and I work all through the day and that second day I'm of course feeling like crap starting to get a little foggy and and something funny starts happening that afternoon uh, my right foot starts feeling sore and I'm like oh that's weird I must have like twisted it or something so Slowly as the afternoon progresses, I start kind of limping a bit and I start finding like when I'm talking with people and stuff, I, I want to put my foot up and rest it. And, and then the night creeps in and I'm still up. I haven't slept and it starts getting worse. And then like the night happens and I'm still up, still going. And that whole night I'm still up. And as the night goes, my leg's getting worse and worse. Wait, you're staying up because your leg hurts? No, I'm staying up because we're working. Oh. Yeah. So we're working. We're pulling out multiple all-nighters in a row. So now it's the beginning of the third. Wait, day. on
0: purpose you're on not going purpose. to, s- to on sleep. On purpose, yes. And y- are you like, uh, this is not a good idea? No, I'm like, I gotta do this because I
1: gotta show, and we gotta stay up because we gotta make finish this project and stuff like that. You know? Oh my
0: god! So
1: now it's the third morning. Wait, you know, it's wait. like it's like that third day. Were you on drugs? Nope. So nope. how do you survive? I was early twenties. I was, you know. So you just stayed up all night. Stayed up. Did you drink? Nope. Ah, uh, they no. They, there probably was some alcohol, but not a lot. Like there was some alcohol, but not a lot. So
0: you would it's just like beers, you know. Like so you would stay up <laughs> just beer. So you yeah. stay up all night long. Yeah, working. Yeah, you work the next day all next day. Are you tired? Yeah, and you're and like
1: foggy. But then you you know like for a little bit like these like surges of energy kick in,
0: and you're like okay another night another night. And my leg
1: is starting to hurt so much that I can barely walk. Now the new morning
0: has started. Okay, I'm going to hypothesize that your brain was not working as well as you thought it was. (laughs) Because anyone who is having a tremendous pain in their leg would like, go, well, maybe I should do something about this.
1: Oh, your hypothesis is, is, if anything, too generous. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, So the new day starts. I can't walk, man. It hurts so badly. So around eleven a.m. that morning, eleven a.m. of the third day, not sleeping for two nights in a row. That's inhuman to be able to stay that long without
0: is, any drugs. So
1: my voice is scratchy. I'm a fog. Things are surreal. My leg is hurting. So I'm finally like, guys,
0: were you productive? No, fuck no. Were you productive the second day?
1: In bursts.
0: <laughs> God. So
1: then I'm like, guys. I gotta go home.
0: And everyone else has been staying up this whole time?
1: Uh, In in shifts, Some people have been up for two days. I don't think anyone was up for the the third day. I think I was the only superhero idiot. And I'm like... Had you done this before? Never that long. I had done all-nighters for sure. So I'm like, guys, I gotta go home. I, I, I don't know what's wrong with my life. I gotta go home. So I go home. I slept 18 hours. When I woke up from the sleep... I was in the worst pain I'd ever felt. My foot, my right foot, had swollen so badly. I certainly could not walk on it. It was, it was like red and huge, and I was feverish. So I'm like, oh my God, I got to go to the doctor. Did you have an infection? I went to the doctor. I'm nodding my head. Went to the doctor, and the doctor immediately was like, oh, okay. So they, first they drained fluid. They took a blood sample. It was a staph infection, Staphylococcus, right? Like, how'd it's you a get bad it? Bad bacteria. Oh, well, that's the thing. I'm like, so what is this? And then, like, well, it's a staph infection. We're going to give you antibiotics. So, just you know, these things can be really dangerous. Uh, you might I, have to lose your leg. You're, yeah, you're fine, but it it can sometimes you you might need to lose a foot. Sometimes things. Like, and I'm like, oh my god! And then I'm like, well, how how did this happen? I didn't I didn't injure myself or anything. Uh and like, well, have you had any like cuts on your foot? And I'm like, Well like uh a few days ago I, I uh bonked my uh toe and I had like a tiny little cut in the shower. And like, well that could be it. And I'm like, Really? I mean that's happened before. It's never like, well, it could also be like your immune system could be down a bit. I'm like, but why? I'm like, Well, have you been sick recently? I'm like, Not really. Uh have you been getting good sleep? I'm like, Well, I was up for three days in a row, and the doctor was like, like, speechless, like, wait, what? Well, well, no, that's the, that's the reason. So they gave me this huge lecture. He, uh, he gave me this huge lecture, or so she, about, uh, or it was, I can't remember. It was the ER anyways. It was this huge lecture about, taking care of myself and i can't do this and i could have lost a limb and it could be super serious the infection could have spread to other parts of my body including organs all these things i was scared shitless i took the antibiotics i did never never pulled that shit off again ever
0: it was so scary that was my war story <laughs> no wonder you're hypochondriac man like that is traumatic yeah that's that was traumatic <laughs> And it was self-inflicted, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, one of the lesser-known things about sleep is it absolutely helps with the immune system. Yeah. Um, in the same way that our cognitive ability declines yeah. as we don't get sleep, so does our immuno defenses. Totally. So, interesting. Um, and, my, you know, in my line of work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, longest I've ever been awake. Uh, I don't know. Um, I certainly played around with sleep a lot when I was younger and I was probably in high school, uh, where, cause I would stay up all night with like Lita and stuff. Mm. and We would just talk yeah. and talk and talk on a school night and, yeah. and my parents were lax enough that I could just stay out all night. I wasn't doing anything bad was the yeah, thing. Yeah. I was just, I was just talking about <laughs> philosophy and stuff yeah. and uh, I'm I'm fairly certain there was more than once when we both just stayed up and didn't sleep mm-hmm. at all and then just went to school so there was probably you know what would that be 36 hours or whatever or yeah. 40 hours or something yeah. uh, certainly I'm sure that happened um, you know a couple dozen of times or something between the ages of 16 and 24 <laughs> there's also a time in college when I thought that sleep was so illogical. Right. I was like, it's so illogical that I sleep. And I I think I might have told you this before that I was like, okay, well, you take seven days. Mm-hmm. And if you sleep, you know, eight hours a day, you get 16 hours of sleep, of awake time each day. Yeah. But I want to be awake for more time. So what if I slept for eight hours, but I, I slept for eight hours um, after being awake for 18 hours. So this throws you off from the right. sun cycle. So you're up for 18 hours, you sleep for eight hours. So it was something like that. Right.
1: You eat into the day, so you start – You start. there's some times where you're just awake at night, and then it cycles back through. Right. Eventually, <laughs>
0: like, you're going to bed at a normal time. But but what you do is you yeah. actually get a lot more waking hours right. to, to, to do things. And I did that for a few months. Oh, you did? Oh, well, yeah. Weird. It was fucking weird. And right. again, it was pro- it probably only worked because I was young. So let me let me get this straight. So
1: like, let's say you wake up at
0: 9 the, the first time. Yeah. And so next day you wake up at 11.
1: Right, because like you were going to be staying awake instead of staying awake till say 10 or whatever. You'd go all the way to like Two, three or something? Well, and so then, I, I, and then, I think it
0: was 20 hours and six hours. Okay. I think I would stay up for 20 hours and I'd sleep for six. Oh, my gosh. So okay. I, I had a 26-hour day instead of a 24-hour day. <laughs> and hour no matter
1: day. what time you woke up, you'd stay up for 20
0: hours. Right. <laughs> and... Uh I remember eventually just being like it's so inconvenient because yeah. everyone else is a, <laughs> is awake when I'm all sleeping and it, it was it would just get kind of weird sometimes but <laughs> so so I did stuff like that but
1: which is the problem with polyphasic
0: sleep too
1: where, you know people that try to right. do that because in theory it's supposed to kind of work but like who can go like oh oops I need my nap right this second like come on yeah. and then it's throughout the day all the time doing naps randomly for 30 minutes here and there
0: Right Um Plus, it's pretty solid science that we need eight hours yep. uh, uh, ish. Some people can get by with seven, um, and some people need nine. Yeah. And some, now you can survive on five, yep. you'll, you'll live, but you're not going to be optimized, for that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, Lyndon asks What are some dickish tendencies you see in psychological professionals specifically? Uh, I guess I'll answer this one. Well, I see people being you know, clinicians being dicks by terminating their clients like especially like their borderline clients because the clients are um, not quote unquote not complying with treatment. Um, I wouldn't call this dickish. I would call yeah. this kind of like typical behavior for therapists but it's kind of dickish. Um, but really kind of a dickish thing that I that I see clinicians do, some particularly in academia and particularly in the field of psychology, meaning psychologists is that They'll act like diagnosing is a science. Oh, okay. Yeah. They'll be like, oh, "Well, it's like a perfect science." <laughs> yeah. Clearly, this person has narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. And if you suggest at all, like I'll never forget, um, I'm in class and it's actually the Warshak class. So okay. we're doing the ink blot, uh, projective yeah. psychological testing course. So I took a, a whole a whole course on how to do ink blot uh, testing, and it's actually. Pretty interesting uh, stuff. It's not very useful in my opinion, but, um, but it's interesting. And the, uh, the professor gives this, um, present- gives this case example, a vignette. Mm-hmm. You know it's like a paragraph you know, describing someone, and then the class of us 12 people, we're supposed to discuss in the class form what we think the, the diagnosis is. You know, Got we're, we're trying to learn how to assess diagnosis right, right right and i'm listening to it and i'm like huh and i and i have a i have a kind of a broader definition of borderline than most people okay but it's not that broad it's not like i'm completely off you know my rocker and so i hear it and i said something like uh and I raised my hand and I was like, well, it kind of sounds like borderline to me. Now, I'm not expecting the professor to be like, oh my God, you're right. You're a genius. That's I'm just, right. <laughs> I'm thinking this is going to be a conversation where we just sort of openly discuss our opinions of how we look at people and what labels we put to people. Yeah. But that's not how the rest of the class saw it. And it's definitely not how the professor saw oh. it. Because he goes, huh, why do you think borderline? And I was like, well, I kind of have a liberal definition of borderline. And, um, I I see attachment insecurity in that person and and that kind of thing, and then this other class, uh, one of my classmates, said this like totally adolescent sarcastic joke making fun of me, uh-huh. saying something like, "Oh yeah, because you know all women who talk crazy, they're borderline, aren't they?" Oh no, Some, literally that joke liter- about women. Liter- well, because that's that's <sighs> the. Um, because it's a stereotype okay. that women are bored So he was sticking up for women.
1: So he was and, trying to make like, oh, you're being sexist kind of thing? Yeah. Even though, Even though you, you that was a,
0: not what I was saying. What yeah. I was saying was it sounds like this pre- – because the anyway. Yeah. And then everyone starts laughing and then the professor doubles down and starts laying into ah. me. And I'm like – That's not a safe environment. <laughs> I'm like, wait. So you're writing on the premise – that based on a paragraph of information, <laughs> there is an absolute right answer to that. Right. Because there's not. It, it, it's Depending on how you define these labels. Right. Oh my God. Now, I'm not going to say something completely out of whack, like it's conduct disorder or something. Yeah. But there, you can make an argument for a lot of different labels here. And certainly, you understand these labels are, they're constructs. And, it's and it's either- in the eye of the <laughs> beholder. Right. People, But these people, psychologists, they're just, you know, not all, but many are just like, there is a discrete label for this. And if you don't agree, you're not a competent clinician.
1: And it occurs to me that the professor, instead of being like, well, oh, now hold on, hold on, like moderating the conversation a little bit, because
0: that wasn't a useful comment. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's say I am wrong, which is fine. Yeah. He could have been like, well, okay, don't ridicule people right classmate um tell me where you're coming from you know yeah. I to, well okay i hear where you're coming from but that's not the way i see that label and that probably isn't the way most of us see that label right. so you can continue to, to see it that way but that's not the way most clinicians define borderline
1: actually what a great teaching moment that would have been in right. either case right right yeah
0: yeah, I mean, it was, whether you're
1: right or you're wrong. It doesn't matter. It's a great teaching moment about the process, the discussion about right. it. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm a student yeah. <laughs> in a class, and I'm offering an opinion <laughs> in a in a, in a vignette yeah. that doesn't matter. That reminds me of uh, in Harry Potter uh, when
1: uh, what's the uh, Trelawney Professor Trelawney? She's the Divinations professor, and uh, Hermione totally looks down on this because. Uh, well, it's it's a funny thing because even though in this world, in this fictional world, magic is absolutely a thing, divinations is seen kind of like astrology for mm-hmm. magic. Like, yeah, well, that's not real, but everything else is real. So they're in the class, and I think Harry or someone – yeah, I think it's Harry. Oh, no, Hermione. Hermione interprets whatever the tea leaves or whatever, and the professor's like – oh, no, that's a terrible interpretation. Like like that kind of thing. Like how could you think that interpretation as if it's this perfect science that you can only interpret it in one way? That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, (laughs) and as
0: a teacher, it's funny because as a student, so I was a professor for a long time and then I went back to get my doctorate. Uh And one of the main things I learned Mm -hmm. in getting my doctorate was how not to be a professor because (laughs) as a student, I would watch, I mean, I could tell you stories of my doctorate (laughs) classes of some of the most like just uneducational experiences aside from learning what not to do as a professor, Mm -hmm. you know, um, i.e. don't ridicule your students.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Like,
0: uh, don 't make them feel like shit for trying to part it wasn't because it wasn 't like I raised my hand and I was just like, "I know the answer right you know, or everyone else listen to me right, you know right. I just was like I was actually normally i wouldn 't participate because i 'm just yeah. kind of shy in classes I was just like well you know okay i'll 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 try to be a part of the crowd this time, you know right. anyway, last <laughs> question here, what oh, is God. Umberto? What, what is your actual dream job? My actual dream job? Famous patron Lyndon wants oh, to know.
1: Okay. That one actually I can answer. I want to create, I want to create uh, specifically, I'm writing a book. I like writing songs. I like making entertainment experience, like experiences, like games and things like that. So I suppose if for the rest of my life, I could work in my little workshop and make things out of my brain, they're my inventions, and put them out for the world, kind of like what we're doing here, you know, I'd be happy.
0: Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it.